Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in March in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you do choose to use a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode. To begin the month on the 1st of March, you'll find the waxing gibbous moon only a degree apart from the bright star Regulus in the constellation of Leo. That's about the width of your little finger held out at arm's length. Regulus is actually a four star system, but the stars are so close together that they look like a single point. The moon and Regulus will arise above the eastern horizon by sunset and fall below the western skyline around sunrise, so they should be visible all night. By the following day, the moon will have reached its full moon phase, the first of the two full moons this month. Now, alike to last month, you can once again watch the moon pass by Jupiter, then the star Antares, then Mars and Saturn during the pre-dawn hours from the 7th to 11th of March. Look towards the south, the planets will look like bright stars. Now, Jupiter will be the brightest of the planets, but Mars is getting brighter. It's brighter now compared to its nemesis in the sky, Antares, which actually translates as anti-Mars or rival of Mars. And Mars is starting to get brighter because later this year, the Earth will pass between Mars and the Sun. Astronomers call this an opposition. And due to Mars's close proximity to the Earth at this time, it will actually appear very bright, outshining Jupiter, in fact. Throughout the month, you'll be able to spot the brightest planet, Venus, in the western sky as the sun starts to set and just after. Mercury will be nearby too, but it's much harder to spot. However, Mercury will reach its greatest elongation on the 15th. That's when our viewpoint of Mercury is at its furthest point east from the sun. So it will be easier to find then. By the 18th, the very thin waxing crescent moon will join this pair. And after some quite chilly winter nights, the vernal equinox on the 20th of March marks the start of astronomical spring. The equinoxes mark when the sun crosses the celestial equator. For those of us in the northern hemisphere, it's when the sun passes from south to north across the celestial equator. At this time, we have approximately equal hours of daylight and darkness. And for the coming months, our hours of daylight will get longer and the sun will appear higher in the sky each day at local noon. Just a few days later, we'll be marking the start of British summertime, so don't forget to change your clocks on Sunday the 25th of March. Our clocks will go forward an hour at 1am on Sunday morning, so we'll be losing an hour of sleep, but this tradition was started about a century ago to make use of the longer daylight hours. It allows us an extra hour of daylight in the evening that would normally be missed in the morning, as most of us would be asleep then. And on the last day of the month, the moon will once again reach its full moon phase. According to the more modern definition, a blue moon is the second full moon that occurs in a single calendar month. But this actually comes from a misunderstanding of the traditional definition, and that states that a blue moon is actually the third out of four full moons that occur in one astronomical season. In any case, blue moons are relatively rare events, 
and it's where the saying once in a blue moon actually arises. Although the moon can sometimes appear a bit bluer, blue moons aren't actually blue in colour. So although the moon won't look any different, the full moon is still a great sight to observe through the night. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROGastronomers. And you can also enter your astro photos into our InSight Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition. You've not got long to go. The competition closes midday on the 9th of March. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Okay, welcome to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. Each month, we choose two news stories that we think have been particularly interesting and uh, present them for you to decide which you think is the, the most interesting of the two. So, Dara, what have you got for us this month? Well, I'm not going to lie, this isn't a breaking news story as such, but I think it's really important that we have news stories that crop up in our news, they blow our minds, and then we don't hear any more about them. So I've picked a story that has now kind of made it back into the astronomy news, and that's because of updates to what they found. So back in October, November, you may have heard of the first detection of an interstellar asteroid, and it was named Oumuamua, which is a really funny name, but it's actually Hawaiian, and it translates for a messenger uh, arriving from afar. Um, so kind of timely named, I guess. It's the first ever interstellar asteroid that has ever discovered, and uh, it made it back into the news, actually, because this is the third paper that has been published by Queen's University Belfast researchers, and they were the ones that discovered this interstellar asteroid. Um, so back in October, so it was the 19th of October in 2017, uh, they were using the PanStars Observatory. This is the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System in Hawaii. Fantastic name. Uh, huge, <laughs> yeah. They're all acronyms, aren't they? Easier to remember as PanStars. But this telescope is detecting visible light and infrared light, and it's perfect for detecting these kind of asteroid-like objects. Just like humans, we're, we're emitting all sorts of radiation. We emit in the infrared, so if we've got an infrared camera, we'd be, we'd be lighting up. These asteroids are very much like us, so if we can detect them using infrared, we're going to be able to spot them. Um, now, when they first found it, it was really strange. So it wasn't very much like asteroids that we find. It was really elongated, um, unlike any asteroids that we've seen in our solar system. They described its shape and size along... Uh, the kind of shape and size of the gherkin skyscraper that we find in London. Oh. So very long compared to wide and also, you know, several uh, metres tall. Uh, they estimated the amount or its size by the amount of light it was reflecting. So this interstellar asteroid was kind of spinning. Uh, and as it was, sometimes we would see more of the reflected light and sometimes a little less. And that's because of its axes. Uh, so they estimated that it was either five to ten times longer than it was wide. Mm. So just by initial observations, detecting how much reflected light you got, they already knew that. Which is it's very different to most of the asteroids we find in our own solar system, which very tend to much. be sort of roundish or potato shaped. Not, yeah. Not sort yeah. of this cigar shaped sort of thing that we've exactly, got. Exactly, exactly. So they're never really long like this. Um, and the time of discovery, well, when they discovered uh, Oumuamua, it was already uh, kind of... It had already come towards the sun and was making its way back out of our solar systems. And the reason they hadn't detected it before is because it was in the same parts of the, the sky as our sun. It made it incredibly difficult to see. But as it had passed by the sun, it was now going to be in our nighttime sky and they were able to detect it. 
But of course, it was making its way away from us. So all of the telescopes in the world that could possibly look towards it uh, had their eyes on it. Now, in the first three weeks of detecting this interstellar asteroid, they first thought it was a comet. Then they thought it was a long period asteroid from our own solar system. But then they actually came up with a new class of objects. So they defined it as an interstellar asteroid, one that has come from outside our solar system. Um, and it's kind of easy to understand why they had that confusion in the first few weeks. Not only because of its weird kind of uh, size and shape, but also because of its composition, what it was made of. So they found it had uh, an icy interior, and then it had a very dry crust uh, surrounding it. And that crust was maybe up to half a meter thick. And uh, that dry crust actually prevented any of the ices from vaporizing when it got close to the sun. And this also made it quite difficult to observe as well. Uh, just like comets in our solar system, when they get close to the sun, the ice vaporizes off their surface, they leave behind a trail of gas or dust, it makes them a little bit easier to spot. But didn't do it that in this case. Um, and the crust it was actually very, very thick. We think that it may be millions, perhaps billions of years having been exposed to cosmic rays from interstellar space. Now, cosmic rays are sort of high energy radiation. A lot of people think they are uh, mostly atomic nuclei. So imagining our hydrogen atom, if you take away the electron, you've just got what's left in the nucleus. Um, and these atomic nuclei are traveling very close to the speed of light. They are very dangerous to us as humans, but thankfully uh, we have the Earth's magnetic field. It protects us and shields us from these cosmic rays. And our sun also has uh, a magnetic field too, the heliosphere. So that kind of protects us in its own way as well. Um, I assume our atmosphere is also quite important. Very as well. important, yeah. yeah. So we've got lots of things that will kind of help protect us from these cosmic rays. But with this interstellar asteroid traveling between solar systems as such, it didn't have anything to protect it. And so these cosmic rays were kind of uh, bombarding its crust and causing it to change. So they basically uncovered that it was uh, similar in some ways to the asteroids that we, or objects that we might find in our solar system. They think it's more like a minor planet that we might find on the, the outer parts of our solar system. So quite icy, maybe perhaps more gray or red in color because they've been exposed to some of these cosmic rays. Um, and it's a little bit of evidence that if we find those minor planets in our solar system, and now we found an object which is very similar to that, perhaps other solar systems or uh, systems around stars have very similar things too. So by January, they had actually pieced together where it had come from, uh, how long it had been traveling for, its composition, shape and color a little bit more, and why it was initially kicked out of its solar system too. So they mapped a path of this interstellar asteroid's journey through our solar system. They saw it was a very highly unusual orbit, uh, and it was making its way back out of our solar system now at about 26 kilometers per second. That's pretty fast. That is really fast. And actually, uh, we think about the Voyager 1 probe, one of the fastest probes that we have. It's traveling about 17 kilometers per second, and it's trying to come out, make its <laughs> so, way out of our solar system. So one of the, one of the fastest man-made objects in, uh, ever made. And, and it's not even close. Yeah, yeah. this one's going even <laughs> faster. Um, and they reconstructed its motion based on its path. And it's likely that this interstellar asteroid came from a star system from one of the young stars in the Pleiades. If you know of the Pleiades, oh. uh, that's that group of uh, seven sisters or seven points of light in the sky. If you use Orion's belt and kind of trek up the sky, you can find that little cluster of stars. 
And it was probably ejected from its home solar system and then sent out into interstellar space. So that's where they think it came from. But what they find is Oumuamua is actually traveling much slower than the average speed or motion of the rest of our galaxy. And it suggests that it's actually been traveling through interstellar space for a relatively short time. If it had been traveling for much longer, it would have encountered probably other massive objects, which then would have uh, had a gravitational influence and sped it up a little bit. So by looking at its speed, uh, they can also kind of work out how long relatively it's been traveling for. We mentioned that it has no protection from uh, a star's magnetic field, and so it's exposed to these cosmic rays, and it's gradually turned the surface of this interstellar asteroid uh, much more red. We talked about its elongated shape. They actually now think it formed from a high-energy collision, so perhaps something knocked into it in its early formation in its own solar system, creating that cigar-like shape that you uh, kind of mentioned it to be like. Even more of an oddity is that they found that it is a pretty even mix of rock and ice. Uh, and that's, again, quite unusual, because when we look in our own solar system, in the inner part of our solar system, we find asteroids, more rocky, perhaps a little bit icier. But then we go to the outer part of our solar system and we find objects which are much icier. Um, so it suggests that this interstellar asteroid probably formed somewhere uh, in the middle of its solar system, not too close to its sun or not too far away either. Now the theory about how, or one of the theories about how it got ejected out of its star system, first of all, is perhaps that uh, the star that it orbited around was part of a binary star system. Uh, and this other star's gravity may have eventually flung this planet away from its own star out into interstellar space. Uh, many millions of similar interstellar asteroids uh, may be crossing our solar system each year, but the problem is right now they are too faint or too small to be detected by the current telescopes that we have. So late in January, Oumuamua was actually too far away that the world's largest telescopes couldn't detect it anymore. But the last little bit of update since then is that our observations are telling us a little bit more about the composition. So by tracking all the data they've collected since, uh, they initially knew it was spinning maybe every seven or eight hours, and that's how they detected its length compared to its width, looking at the reflected light. But they knew it wasn't periodic, so it wasn't spinning in a, I don't know, a normal way. It was quite erratic. So they've, they've actually found it's tumbling in a very complex way. It shows us uh, different sides of itself at different times, so we can't really predict what we're going to see. It's very chaotic. Now, most of the asteroids in our solar system don't tumble. They may be spinning, but they're not tumbling wildly. And it tells us that the internal motions of uh, this asteroid haven't dampened as such. They haven't allowed it to spin in a more uh, kind of periodic way. It, it suggests that the inside of Oumuamua is actually more of a, a solid chunk of rock or metal rather than loose material that has any sort of internal structure. I kind of like to think of it as um, like a washing machine. And if you had your washing machine spinning and you chucked in a load of ball bearings, they'd all be going off in random ways, but eventually they would die down into that kind of spinning motion of the washing machine. But with a, a large piece of rock or metal, not these kind of loose materials, you're not going to get that dampening of the, the motions. It's just going to continue kind of spinning or tumbling chaotically. 
And they think that perhaps this tumbling uh, was the result of um, impacts in its uh, early history. So once again, kind of referring to a very violent past that this poor interstellar asteroid has had. Not only has it been (laughs) impacted onto its long shape and tumbling, it's then been kicked out of its solar system too. It's not had a very uh, nice kind of early life, I would say. And then irradiated for millions of years. Yeah, just baked and baked and baked. (laughs) Poor asteroid. Um, eventually it may the internal stresses may die down it may dampen but this could take billions and billions of years so we're going to see it tumbling uh, for the kind of foreseeable future at least the last little bit is that the research has shown that the surface is quite spotty uh, most neutrally it's kind of coloured, uh, so most of it is uh, a kind of dirty snow-like colour. It is a little bit spotty, but there is one long face of the uh, the interstellar asteroid that is very red compared to the rest of it. And again, that's not what we see in asteroids in our solar system. They may be patchy, but overall they're quite uniform. This suggests that uh, this interstellar asteroid is quite broad in its composition, like variations. So there are large bits of this asteroid that are very different to each other. And again, it's quite unusual for a small object. For a planet-sized object, we'd expect there to be huge differences. But for something so small, uh, that is a rarity in itself. So in summary, within the five first months of observation of Oumuamua, the uh, scientists have defined a new type of object. So we've got interstellar asteroids now. They've determined that it has a very elongated cigar-like shape. We think that's due to an impact. They have theorized that the interstellar asteroid started out around another star, uh, perhaps one in the Pleiades group. Uh, They suggest it's been traveling for a relatively short time, uh, perhaps millions of years through interstellar space, and that's because it's still quite slow moving. We know that it is tumbling, so it's perhaps made of a more solid rock or uh, kind of metal core. One of the faces is much redder, suggesting it has broad compositional uh, variations, and they theorize that it had a very violent beginning, like we've explained, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better either. (laughs) But in the, in the future, um, we're hoping we're going to have the telescopes to be able to detect more objects like this. So uh, the LSST, which is the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, is currently being built in Chile, and they're hoping for it to be operational in the year 2022, so we've got a few years to go yet. Uh, but it will be able to scan the whole sky in three days, which I think is absolutely incredible. Mm, absolutely. Such a large part. Most telescopes are looking to particular parts. Yep. We're talking about a, you know, a huge chunk. It will also be looking invisible in infrared, so perfect for trying to spot these interstellar asteroids. Uh, so it will be able to detect very faint objects and it will catch anything that is moving in the sky because it will be co- watching it every few days. So if interstellar asteroids are actually common, then we should be detecting one every year from then on. So hopefully on the lookout, we're going to be detecting more and more of these interstellar asteroids that have come from worlds far beyond our own. Oh, fantastic. No, that's a brilliant story. Excellent. Well, uh, go yeah. on then, Greg. What have you got to top that this month? Well, so from rogue asteroids, we're going to go to rogue planets now, but rather further away. A big topic in research at the moment of course is exoplanets planets around other stars and most of the about three and a half thousand planets that we found around other stars so far have been found through one of 
three methods. One of them is uh, the transit method, where you wait for the planet to pass in front of you, uh, sorry, in front of the star. It makes the star's light dip a little from our point of view. So we see that a few times, we go, ah, there's a planet there, fantastic. Then there's the radial velocity method. The planet actually exerts a pull on its own star, so it gets it to move around, it wobbles slightly. And by seeing this slight wobble in the spectrum of a star, so splitting out all of the colours into the spectrum of the star, we can detect it that way. So if a star is doing a sort of hula hoop motion, yeah, absolutely, yes, absolutely. An exoplanet. Nice. And the last one is direct imaging, which is most of the time the most difficult one, because you are attempting to see this tiny insignificant dot next to a much, much brighter dot, which is the star. Um, so this only really works on planets which are way, way, way outside, uh, far out from their own parent star. So that's very, very tough. But all of these have quite severe limits on how far away we can see um, these planets. They have a limit on the distance that we can see them. Okay. The vast majority of the suspected and all of the confirmed planets so far have been discovered in our own galaxy. And most of them have been in a relatively small region of our galaxy. Very close by, perfect, brilliant, we can see loads of them. When you're getting towards halfway across the galaxy, then you're in trouble. You, you find it very, very difficult to find planets that far. But attempts have been made to find planets at much, much greater distances using a very different method. Ooh. And this method, we're going to have to go, unfortunately, to general relativity in order to understand <gasps> you're it. You're going to hurt our brains, Greg. I know, unfortunately so. Um, so Einstein, uh, when in his sort of crowning glory of his uh, theories... Uh, showed that gravity is a bending of this thing that we call space-time, which is like the fabric of the universe. So uh, if you place uh, a heavy object on a suspended rubber sheet, then it makes a dent in that sheet. And that dent is similar to the, the effect that, effectively, it's gravity. That's the, the, the deformation of this space-time, which is what this rubber sheet is. The heavier the object you put on the rubber sheet, the bigger the dent you get, and so the stronger the gravity of a larger object placed in space-time. This curvature makes objects fall inwards. So if you throw a ball into that rubber sheet that's got a dent in it, it'll try to spin around, the orbit around the, the, the heavy object. It's a bit like those uh, kind of uh, coin thing where you put your coin into the little machine and it kind of funnels down that's and right. spirals around absolutely. until it gets to the centre. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing, though, is that uh, gravity can also affect light. So light is bound to this space-time as well, and if there's a dent in space-time, light follows that dent. Which means that heavy objects can work a bit like a glass lens. They focus light in towards one position. Um, so they bend the light around that object, uh, focusing it and making that light brighter for uh, a person viewing from the other side. These gravitational lenses come in all sorts of different forms, mostly based on how massive the object that's doing the lensing is. Strong lensing happens when the lens is very, very massive, when you have either an entire massive galaxy in the way, or if you have an entire cluster of galaxies, so hundreds potentially of galaxies, 
all combining their gravity together to bend light around. Right. Because these lenses are very peculiarly shaped, what you get is a very distorted image of whatever is behind you, uh, behind the behind the um, the lens. Usually, it results in multiple images of the same object appearing in different places in the sky, and these images are very very distorted. They turn into arcs or even rings that go the entire way around. The, and they are the called Einstein cluster. rings, aren't that's they? That's right, Einstein rings. That's right. But the light is focused, so even though the image of this object is very very weird and doesn't look like the object it came from in the first place, um, it is still brighter, which means you can see distant objects more easily. It's like placing them under a massive magnifying glass. Right. Okay. Admittedly, a, a fairly poor magnifying glass, <laughs> but a magnifying glass nonetheless. Because neither the source nor the lens are moving very fast compared with the size of the lens, this lens effect lasts a very, very long time. So you can study the same object under this lens for an extremely long period of time, certainly far longer than human timescales. Well, that's quite so, handy for us then, isn't it? Exactly, absolutely. So these lenses hang around for a while. If, however, the lensing object is very small, say a planet, then instead of this grand distortion that we get, these Einstein rings or arcs in the sky, what you just get is a, a slight boost in the level of the light. The distortion is very small because whatever you're looking at, you can't make out features of anyway. But you just get a, a tiny little boost for a very short period of time, a few hours to days. Um, and that's because the, the lens is very small. It moves very quickly across whatever it is it's lensing. So why are these useful? Well, strong lenses are perfect for studying very distant galaxies. As I said, it's like putting a, a vast magnifying glass over the top of this galaxy. And so strong lenses are perfect for studying the object being lensed. Microlensing, on the other hand, which is when you've got this small planet in the, on the, in the way, is much more useful for studying the lensing object itself. itself. So studying the planet. Okay. Because what you do is you look at objects you already understand, like stars in the background, and wait for an object to pass close by to it. To see a difference. In order to see a difference, to sort of see this little boost. And when you see this little boost, you know that something has passed by, even though you can't see that object. The planet is far too dim. There's no way you're going to be able to tell that it's there directly. But because of this little boost that you get in the star's light, you can tell that it was there. I feel like this is almost the opposite to a transit. So that during yep. the transit, you get a dip in the, the star's light. Exactly. Here, you're getting a boost in the star's light, and that's because it's, that light is being lensed and focused, so you get a, that little boost yep. of light. That's absolutely right. How oh, very clever. The problem with microlenses is that they tend to be one-off events. So a planet passes in front of, or very close to being in front of, a star. Uh, the star's light gets a little boost, but then the planet will never pass in front of that anymore because these are rogue planets. These aren't planets connected to, to stars. They're ones which are traveling freely throughout galaxy or through the galaxy that they're in. So it's just like Oumuamua, which uh, rocks traveling through space just on their own. Right. But these ones, so once the planet passes in front of that star, it's never going to do that again because it's, it's traveling on its merry way. And there are planets that we think we may have discovered in Andromeda, in the Andromeda galaxy, which were little boosts, these little microlenses, but we can't be certain because they only happen once Ooh. and they last a very short time and we can't check it. So even if we eventually find 
planets in the Andromeda galaxy, we will never know if they were the planets that formed those little microlenses. In the first place. Because we'll never be able to test that. However, because, just because you can't confirm individual planets doesn't mean you can't find entire populations of them. And work by uh, Zingudai and Eduardo Guerras, I do apologise for the pronunciations, I'm sure I've got them wrong, um, from the University of Oklahoma. They were working on looking at a distant galaxy which was lensed by a much closer, vast elliptical galaxy. So a very, very heavy, very, very massive galaxy. Uh, so this is strong lensing, so producing lots of different arcs across the sky. Uh, the distant galaxy was about 6 billion light years away. Uh, which is about halfway to the beginning of the universe in, in time. The galaxy contains a feeding supermassive black hole. So we've talked about supermassive black holes in the last few months on this podcast before. When a black hole feeds, it produces loads and loads of light. And so this light is then magnified by the gravitational lens of this elliptical, elliptical galaxy. galaxy in the foreground, um, so making it even brighter. But it gets better because astronomers noticed flashes of a specific energy of X-ray light. So the same sort of light that a doctor would use to check your arm for a fracture. Um, and this specific energy of X-rays is actually associated with the element of iron. And we know that that particular feature comes very close to the supermassive black hole. So it has to be in that tiny little point that the, the, around the supermassive black hole. So they were kept seeing these little flashes of this particular uh, type of X-ray light. So while other explanations are possible, they, they are fairly unlikely. The most likely situation is that it's actually planets in that galaxy, so the distant galaxy, passing in front of the supermassive black hole and producing these little microlensing events. So little tiny boosts in the light. So just to summarise exactly what I'm saying there, cool. the light from a feeding black hole is being magnified by a series, not just one, a whole series of different planets this, uh, in halfway across the universe, which is then being boosted again by the elliptical galaxy about a quarter away across the universe, and then is finally detected by an X-ray telescope orbiting around the Earth. This is mad. So it's already pretty impressive. Um, they estimate that these rogue planets, so it's planets which are not bound to a star, they can't be, otherwise there would be other effects going on. They estimate that there should be about 4,000 planets from the size of Jupiter down to about the size of the moon, our moon, per star in that galaxy. So, so each star in that galaxy has 4,000 rogue planets? Yes. So I'll be honest... I'm sceptical. <laughs> I kind of agree with you there, Greg. So 4,000 planets is a lot. Uh, admittedly, we're going all the way down to things the size of the moon. So we've got a little bit more leeway there. But let's just take our solar system as an example. And these are solar system planets, so the bound ones, the ones that managed to stay in our solar system and weren't chucked away during the formation of it. We have actually 13 objects which range from the size of the moon all the way up to uh, size of Jupiter. Uh, and that includes all of the planets, the Moon, and a couple of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, Callisto, Ganymede, Io, and uh, Titan. But let's say that we don't allow just down to the Moon. Let's say we go a little bit further. There's always a bit of uncertainty sure. in astronomy. So let's allow for things which are half the size of the Moon. Uh, then we go up to 24. We're still not reaching 4,000. We're still quite we? a way away, yeah. 
However, at the at the top end, uh, they suspect one Jupiter mass planet, roughly, per four stars. Which, considering we have roughly four Jupiter-sized planets in our solar system, means Macy. we're not too far off on that one. That's pretty good. But we're on the limit here, aren't we? But we are on the limit. Um, so, here's the question. Are there a lot more rogue planets in the Milky Way than there are bound ones? Ones that are actually captured by a star? Maybe. Theoretically, based on the numbers that we have, it's possible that there could be up to 100,000 rogue planets per star in our galaxy. But we don't have enough detections of rogue planets in order to check that, in order to make certain it's true. So what other possibilities are there? Um, could it be that our solar system is very, very small? Well, it's possible. But the planets that we found around other stars seem to suggest that's probably not true either. They're Typically, we find close a few. To their star, aren't they? We, admittedly, we, we only find ones which are very close to their star. Maybe there's a lot more further out. But we even so, them, yeah. yeah, exactly. But even so, that seems unlikely too. Um, could other galaxies have more planets, more rogue planets than the Milky Way? Sure, absolutely. But why a planet which is less than half the age of our one would have less planets rather than more? That one's a yes. bit of a tough one. I, it, I don't quite see why that would necessarily be true. But it's possible. So here's the thing. As impressive an achievement as it is to find uh, potentially rogue planets in a galaxy halfway across the universe when we have trouble finding them halfway across our galaxy, that's impressive. impressive. But this is a perfect time to, be, uh, to emphasize how important it is to be skeptical have healthy scepticism in science. Uh, it really is an example of, of when to, to not just take results on face value. Yes, it's possible, and it's fantastic work by these scientists, and I'm not saying for a second that they are wrong, but I also, at the moment, no one study, no one survey ever answers a question entirely. It's always a combination of lots of studies. It's the same with exoplanets. I mean, when they were first discovered, this is why we have suspected candidates and those that are confirmed. Exactly. Because several observations have confirmed the same thing. And I think yep. you're absolutely right. Um, as amazing achievement if this is actually uh, the case. But I think we do need to, to wait until we've got... A little bit more to perhaps back it up. What a fantastic story there, Greg. Um, we're going to put it to our listeners, to you guys. We want you to vote for your favourite news story for this month. We're going to tweet our uh, podcast and a poll on Twitter at the beginning of March. So please do listen to our podcast and vote for your favourite story. Before we end, just a quick update on last month's news stories. Uh, so we had two new stories that were uh, the first imaging of a distant star, so observing actual features on its surface. And we also had uh, a potential new definition for a planet. We had 15 votes altogether. It was very, very close. But uh, imaging for a distant star clinched it with 53%. And then we had 47% of you looking at uh, the new definition of a planet as your favourite news story. So, Greg, I think it's 2-1 to you now. Uh, we're not too far off being even Stevens again. But we will leave it with you guys. Thanks for listening. That's all for this month. But be sure to join us next month for more of Look Up.